Joshua chapter 7, reading the chapter in its entirety, all 26 verses. Israel had crossed the Jordan into the promised land on dry land. She had taken and burned the first city in her path of conquest. The power of the Lord had been exercised on her behalf in the most dramatic and remarkable ways. Nothing could stand in the way of this juggernaut, or so it seemed. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So the first verse summarizes the account we are about to read. The statement that the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel is an inclusio. We find a similar reference to the Lord's anger, in this case his turning away from his burning anger, in the last verse of the chapter. In that way we are told that the theme of the chapter is Yahweh's anger at Israel. One commentator entitles the chapter, The Church in the Hands of an Angry God. The identification of Achan by family line and tribe serves to indicate that he was a genuine insider, a true Israelite. This was not one of the hangers-on. Achan was as much an Israelite as Rahab was a Canaanite. Now remember, the devoted things were those valuable items in Jericho that were to be placed in the treasury of the Lord, as we read in 6 verse 19, and which Joshua and virtually everyone else assumed had been put in the treasury, as we read in chapter 6, verse 24. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. I grew up pronouncing the name of this town Ai. I checked an online Hebrew pronunciation guide and there found it pronounced I or A-E. So I checked, I emailed Jack Collins at Covenant Seminary and he wrote back saying that it was to be pronounced I, as in I. So I it is. And the thing is a ruin anyway, so it's not as though you're ever going to need to find it on a map. Um, And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole group toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted, and became as water. Now you find different assessments of this account of the defeat in the commentaries. Some argue that sending only a small force was evidence of a failure to appreciate how vital to success was Israel's unity. The whole army should have gone. Evidence that Israel had forgotten Yahweh and intended to win this battle on its own, or that their previous victories had rendered them overconfident. On the other hand, some other 
Commentators suggest that the smaller number of soldiers might just as well have been sent to a smaller town precisely because the people trusted the Lord to win the battle for them no matter the size of the army or the opposition. It may have been just as well an exercise of confidence in the Lord rather than in themselves. The fact is the text, text doesn't explain or critique Israel's strategy in one way or another. But it does say explicitly that the problem wasn't the strategy. The problem was Achan and his sin. And once that problem was fixed, the battle would be won. Any other explanation, in my view, distracts from the clear and intended lesson of the chapter. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. The comparatively small number of casualties, 36, Calvin thought was sufficient to disclose the Lord's displeasure without causing more serious damage to Israel's future prospects. But it's hardly surprising that she responded as she did. After all that had happened, her conquests on the eastern side of the Jordan, the crossing of the Jordan on dry land, the miraculous conquest of Jericho, she did not expect this, to be sent packing by effectively a village, left her exposed in enemy territory, wondering what had gone wrong. And at the moment, nobody knew what we have already been told about the situation in the first verse of the chapter. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. That lament Sounds very much, doesn't it, like Israel's lament nearly 40 years before after the spies brought back to Kadesh Barnea a gloomy report of Canaanite military strength. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of Israel or hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? As someone has observed wisely, complaining to God is very different from complaining about God. Joshua is venting his confusion and his discouragement, but he's doing so in direct conversation with God. And in a way very similar to Moses before, Joshua interceded for Israel by arguing that Yahweh's reputation was at stake. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? The Lord's get up conveys irritation. Joshua is missing the point. As Francis Schaeffer reminded us, God is brusque at times. He is brusque when those who have ample reason to know the answer forget it. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. In other, in other words, what had happened to Israel was precisely... What Yahweh had warned would happen in chapter 6, verse 18, if Israel sinned in this way. Joshua should have been asking, all right, 
who sinned by taking some of the devoted things. That last sentence in verse 12 is the pivot of the chapter. We now know why Israel suffered a defeat and we know what has to be done about it. Otherwise, the worst possible eventuality would be realized. Yahweh would leave Israel to her own devices. It was his presence with her that had brought her this far. Everybody understood that. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Why so severe a punishment? Because the sin was so grave and so destructive. Thirty-six men had already lost their lives. After all, this is not simply a sin against the law of God, as if only one commandment or another had been broken. It was a sin against the love of God and against the grace of God and against the provision that God had made for his people, against the victories that God had provided for Israel, against her enemies. It was nothing less than a repudiation of Yahweh. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. You can imagine how the tension was building through that exercise as the tribe was chosen, the clan, the family, and then which of these individuals? Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. 200 shekels was approximately 80 ounces or 7 pounds of silver. A bar of gold weighing 50 shekels was 20 ounces, a little more than a pound. So the temptation was considerable. But it was precisely against those very temptations that Moses had warned Israel before she entered the promised land. We read in Deuteronomy 7, 25, and 26, Do not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, and take it for yourself, because you could be ensnared by it, for it is abhorrent to the Lord. Do not bring an abhorrent thing into your house, or you will be set apart for destruction like it. So Achan's sin was not simple theft. It was defiance. It was closer to apostasy than to theft. So Joshua sent messengers 
And they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. As Rahab's family had been saved along with her, so Achan's family was destroyed along with him. The Lord demanded not only the destruction of Achan, but the destruction of his name. His line was wiped out. The violence previously directed against the Canaanites, was now being directed against a family of Israel. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. The naming of the place was meant to fix the lesson and the warning in Israel's collective consciousness. Disobedience to God can bring disastrous consequences upon the people. Our Father in heaven, we have before us one of those passages of which there are a great many in the word of God that is pure, unadulterated warning, solemnizing warning. Help us, O God, to take this to heart, not to live a sentimental or superficial life, to realize how serious life is and so how serious the summons to offer our lives in obedience to God. Here an answer we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now the general drift of the chapter is clear enough. The question it addresses is whether when Israel entered Canaan, Canaan would enter Israel as well. The very fear that Moses had frequently expressed before his death. We've already witnessed a Canaanite and her family entering Israel, but that was because Rahab confessed her faith in Yahweh and became an Israelite in her heart. But here we witness an Israelite becoming a Canaanite, the reverse of what had happened in Rahab's case. It's easy to stop there and leave the lesson in the form of a benign generality. Rahab had faith and was saved. Achan was disobedient and brought trouble upon the people of God. We must therefore believe and obey. True enough. But it cannot be put in terms so tame, lest we don't take the lesson sufficiently to heart. We're very likely 21st century Americans, as we are, to skip over the brutal facts or almost completely to ignore the shocking features of this narrative. As Rahab and her family were saved alive, Achan and his family were executed and then burned. And because of Achan's sin, 36 other families in Israel were mourning the loss of husbands, fathers, brothers, uncles, and cousins. We've noticed again and again in Joshua in a very, in, or that Joshua in a very intentional and paradigmatic way is teaching us 
the way of salvation and the nature of the Christian life. We have that instruction here, however little anyone nowadays is paying attention to it. Let's begin with this question. Was Achan a believer or an unbeliever? In verse 20, after he was exposed as the culprit, he seems unusually willing to confess his fault, even to acknowledge, as David would much later, that his sin was first and foremost a sin against God. What is more, unlike so many who make some effort at repentance, he readily admitted on his own initiative that the problem was first a problem of his own heart. When I saw the expensive and beautiful objects, I coveted them. He was explicit in identifying the things that he had taken. He volunteered the information as to where they could be found. He doesn't seem to have made any effort to excuse himself or to minimize the wrong. He admitted that the cloak was from Shinar. Being from Shinar in those days, it was chic. It would be like admitting today that you shoplifted the purse because, well, it was a Prada. In our day, when such admissions after the fact are so often made defensively, are accompanied by excuses, and are not complete until the whole truth has been slowly wheedled out of the man or woman, Aiken's confession seems refreshingly honest, thorough, and sincere. I can imagine myself very well telling someone nowadays to give glory to God and confess his sin as honestly as Achan did. On the other hand, the severity of the punishment seems to suggest that Achan was regarded as having crossed the line that separated the true people of God from those whose membership was only superficial and external. I am unable to judge the validity of this claim, but one scholar argues that Achan's name makes no sense in Hebrew. It derives from no known root and is attested nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. But the name in Hebrew does represent an anagram of the root word from which Canaan is derived. Has the narrator, in other words, given the man a name that identifies him as a spiritual Canaanite? Does the name indicate that there was a Canaanite within the people of God? If that were the case, if Achan wasn't his real name, it was just his spiritual name, then the narrator would be telling us that Achan was not a true Israelite, not a man of faith, not, as we would say nowadays, a saved man. But Achan's spiritual position is hardly the only question. Thirty-six other men had already died because of Achan's sin, because God punished Israel for the sin of one Israelite. And we have no reason to believe that all those 36 men were spiritual Canaanites. It isn't as if such solidarity and sin and guilt isn't taught elsewhere and illustrated elsewhere in the Word of God. Four of David's sons died because of his sins of adultery and murder, in the case of Bathsheba and her husband. And one of those sons was an infant, a newborn. In the effete and sentimental culture of American evangelicalism, highly individualistic as it is, Christians have trouble fitting this fact into their understanding of the gospel or of the ways of God or even of the character of God. 
If they don't ignore this entirely, they are, in fact, very likely to conclude that this is the sort of thing that God might have done in the Old Testament, but not something that he would do today. But that is not so. Ananias and Sapphira also stole what belonged to God. Their sin was, in fact, very like Achan's. And they, too, were executed for what they had done. Their judgment was exemplary. A lesson for all time, as was Achan's, each coming right after a new beginning in the history of the people of God. The entrance into the promised land, in Achan's case, Pentecost, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. But they're not the only ones like Achan in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read that sins against the unity of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ had already led to the death of some in the Corinthian church. There is, as you may be aware, a long-standing dispute as to whether those whose lives the Lord had taken in punishment for those sins were false Christians, not Christians at all in the deepest sense of the word, or whether there were among them real believers who were nevertheless living badly as Christians. It's frankly impossible to know. What is more, beside the 36 Israelite soldiers who died in the first engagement at Ai, a significant number of others, the members of Achan's family, were likewise executed with the head of their family. We certainly do not know that any of them was, or that all of them were spiritual Canaanites. Indeed, in my view, it strains credibility to suppose that all of his sons and daughters were of the same spiritual temper as their father. That they were, in other words, Canaanites in Israelite dress. Some of them, in any case, may have been very young. Let me ask you, can you incorporate this narrative into your understanding of how the world works, of the Christian faith, and of God himself? Or does this narrative challenge your too easy assumptions about God and what God does and what God would do? How about the corporate solidarity that you witness here in Joshua 7? Does that make sense to you? Did you notice the interplay of the corporate and the personal in the narrative as we read it? The chapter begins with the statement that Israel had broken faith with the Lord. Why? Because one Israelite, a man by the name of Achan, had taken some of the devoted things for himself. The whole nation was implicated in the sin of one of its number. Once again, in verse 11, we read that Israel had sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things and lied and put them among their own belongings. It is as if every Israelite had done what Achan had done. But only one man took the devoted things. But when he was executed, his family was executed with him. Does that make sense to you? It should. Whether or not we can provide an ultimate explanation for this solidarity and sin and guilt, the fact is it is something we encounter everywhere in human life. You can see it everywhere you look and in the Christian life. It is certainly a fact of our political and national life. We are all implicated in the decisions that are made for us by our government, and we all suffer the consequences when those decisions are unwise, as they have often been, as they are sometimes today. 
The opinion shapers in our culture have changed life for all of us, whether we agreed with what they thought, said, and did or not. Human life is a community affair. All of us have been diminished and corrupted by our toxic American culture. It is harder to be a faithful Christian in America today than it has been at other times and in other places. That's a fact of life. Only a fool denies it. Do you suppose that there were as many politicians, or for that matter, Christian ministers and church leaders, found guilty of sexual infidelity three or four generations ago, as there have been in our sexually permissive, pornography-riddled and prurient age? Some will comfort themselves and say that there were, there must have been, as much of this in the old days as there was today, or as there is today. But it's not so. Christian men did not face such constant and alluring temptations. American men didn't in bygone days. And sexual fidelity was, for that reason, more of a commonplace. But the reality of this principle of corporate solidarity is in many more ways a fact of life in the Christian church. Children are being lost to the church and to heaven every day because of the sins of their parents. A failure of Christian nurture in the home, a poor example of Christian devotion and faithfulness, a failure on the part of parents to discipline and to control their children. I say these parental sins are sending to hell multitudes of children born into Christian homes. They always have, as the Bible is at pains, both to teach us and to show us, and they still do today. The sins of the parents do not absolve the children for their unbelief, but they are certainly a root cause of it. Sins of the church's leadership have consigned generations of people born and raised in the Christian church to lives of unbelief and the eventual judgment of God. Surely that's the case when the leadership is unbelieving and unwilling to teach the truth of the word of God or to govern the church according to it. That's why the Old Testament prophets so regularly blame Israel's spiritual collapse on an unfaithful ministry. But it is also the case in in believing churches, where ministers and elders and deacons are nevertheless unfaithful in some particular ways when they are indolent and careless of their responsibilities, or when they allow unrepented sin to remain unconfronted in the body, souls are destroyed. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time, those of us in Christian leadership have seen this, alas, times without number. People who ought to have been faithful Christians lose interest in the Lord under such leadership, find themselves increasingly attracted to the allure of the world, and they can't summon up any longer the reasons or the courage by which to resist the beautiful cloaks from Shinar and the bars of silver and gold. Let few be teachers, for those who teach will be judged more strictly, is not some innocuous proverb. It's a solemn warning of accountability for others and the Lord's intention to demand an accounting from those who have undertaken that responsibility themselves. The burning of the bodies of Achan and his family is surely an emblem of eternal judgment, whether or not all of that family was spiritually lost. The fact that others 
were burned besides Achan himself is meant to send a shudder down our spines. Our sins have consequences in the lives of others. Angry fathers produce angry sons. Abusive fathers produce abusive children. Alcoholic fathers often produce alcoholic children. The entire Bible warns us that judgment begins with the people of God. We are constantly being reminded that God knows what we are doing, everything. We have no secrets from him. Achan hid his treasures and buried them under his tent, but the Lord knew what he had done. And throughout the Bible we learn that when we sin, the Lord's blessing is withheld. Sometimes just from ourselves, but often, very often, it is withheld from others as well. Joshua 7 is a summons for all of us to reckon with how seriously the Bible takes our sins and the sins of others in the church. We treat all of this, we must all admit, we treat all of it far too lightly. We easily forget how deadly a place this world actually is because of sin and how lethal our own sins can be. The sins we wink at. The sins we so glibly tolerate. Jesus was only being true to the very facts that Joshua 7 is forcing us to face when he told us to gouge out our right eye or cut off our right arm if that's what it takes to get rid of our sins. He found sin an alarming thing deeply worrying because of its possible consequences both for us and for others. Far too often we don't fear our sins. You know it and I know it. Surely if Joshua 7 is in the Bible, it's in the Bible because of the warning it provides against underestimating the consequences of our sins. I have a friend who lost a little child This friend is a serious, committed, experienced, devout Christian. But he also had some sins in his life that he did not root out, he did not repudiate, he did not put to death as he should have, and they found him out. Now, because he is the sort of man he is, because he knows the Bible as well as he does, because he takes it as seriously as he does, he can't help but worry that the death of his child was an act of divine judgment on account of his sin. That his child died because of what he had done. He's too well read in the word of God to take seriously those many Christians who tell him, oh, God would never do something like that. For he knows very well that God would do something like that and in fact has done such things. David lost four children because of his sin. Eli lost both his sons because of his sins. And Achan lost his entire family. True enough, in all of those cases, the Bible itself makes explicit the connection between the father's sin and the death of his children. But no one can read those texts and conclude that these were the only times in human history that God ever did such a thing. Indeed, we're taught to expect that God will regularly visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. Indeed, we see him doing that in many ways everywhere we look in human life. So much of the perversity 
of American culture, so much of the blighted lives of the American population is the direct result of the sins of the previous generation. In the case of Achan, God told Joshua what sin had been committed and provided a procedure by which to discover the identity of the perpetrator. We're not given such means. Believers in the ancient epoch usually weren't given those means either. They are given here and in a few other places in the Word of God precisely that a permanent lesson might be impressed upon the church's mind and heart. So what am I to tell my friend? It's certainly to be admitted that not all death and suffering on the part of a child is due to a relative's sin. You remember that our Lord explicitly repudiated that logic in the case of the man born blind in John chapter 9. And to be frank, we are all sufficiently sinful and insufficiently penitent that if our sins were always to be punished in this life and visited upon our loved ones, there would be no one left alive in the church of God. Surely there were some men in Israel, every one of them indeed to some degree, whose lives were not as stainless as they ought to have been as they moved on I. Was Achan's spirit and behavior that different from every single other Israelite soldier? Indeed, it's in this differing response on God's part to the sins of his children that we confront one of the deepest mysteries of God's providence. With his characteristic insight, John Newton observed, The Lord makes some of his children examples and warnings to others as he pleases. They who are spared and whose worst deviations are only known to the Lord and themselves have great reason to be thankful. I'm sure I have. The merciful Lord has not suffered me to make any considerable blot in my profession during the time I have been numbered among his people, but I have nothing to boast of herein. It has not been owing to my wisdom, watchfulness, or spirituality, but I hope to go softly all my days under the remembrance of many things for which I have as great cause to be abased before him as if I had been left to sin grievously in the sight of men. It's a severe mercy, apparently, however, an altogether necessary one, that some of us should be exposed as Achan was. Such public catastrophe is, I fear, sometimes all that keeps us from making peace with those sins that must, that would have a lethal effect if they were not put to death. Here we're given to see what sin is and what sin does and how many suffer its consequences. Here we learn how terribly serious life is and how deadly can be the consequences of unfaithfulness even among the people of God. Here we learn how much is at stake when we toy with the Lord's summons to obedience instead of embracing it with heart and soul and mind and strength. God is a God of infinite mercy and love, absolutely. But he is also a God of judgment. It's not ours to explain the ways of God, but it is absolutely essential that we recognize them and reckon with them. Life indeed is beautiful, but it is also a deadly serious thing. A dangerous thing. Achan thought he would get away with taking those treasures. 
what he never imagined as he was reaching for them was that he would not only be found out himself, but that his entire family would be destroyed as a result of what he was doing at that moment. As the Apostle Paul would remark more than a thousand years later, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Amen.